0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled, Is Synergism the Secret to Success? Candid Conversations on Targeting GIP and GLP-1 to Individualize Treatment in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes and Obesity. Featuring Dr. Javier Morales from the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine in Hofstra Northwell in Hampstead, New York. Dr. Juan Pablo Frias from Velocity Clinical Research in Los Angeles, California and Dr. Donna H. Ryan from Pennington Biomedical Research Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KZF860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Welcome to this candid conversation on targeting GIP and GLP-1 as treatments for type 2 diabetes and obesity. We're delighted that you have joined us for this dynamic and wide ranging dialogue as we attempt to answer the question, is synergism the secret to success? We will present this information in a late night talk show format. And tonight we have some dynamic expert guests, Dr. Donna Ryan from the Pennington Biomedical Research Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Dr. Juan Frias from Velocity Clinical Research in Los Angeles, California, who will join me, Dr. Javier Morales, your host. Together we'll explore GIP-GLP1 dual agonists, one of the emerging twinkerton classes of treatments. Okay, let's get started and talk about why there is no time to wait when we're talking about obesity. It's no mystery that over the years, our body mass index here in the United States has greatly increased. You can see that we started back in 1999-2000 being overweight, but as the years have gone on, Well, lifestyle takes into consideration, and dietary practices, and we're actually getting heavier. In fact, we're at the dawn of our average body mass index crossing over into the obesity sector. Now, one thing that we've learned is the fact that insulin resistance correlates with obesity. And if we look at different classes of obesity, looking from normal weight all the way to class 3 obesity, which is a BMI of greater than 40, there seems to be an almost exponential increase in the incidence of diagnosis of diabetes. I always like to look at obesity as an umbrella with many different factors underneath that umbrella. Metabolic aberrancies such as poor sleep architecture, obstructive sleep apnea, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, degenerative joint disease and arthritis, significant dyslipidemia, worsening hypertension, coronary artery disease, as well as type two diabetes. And we do know that type 2 diabetes and hyperglycemia does contribute to microvascular complications. That is, retinopathy, neuropathy, and nephropathy, but there's also macrovascular complications such as stroke and heart attack risk that's greatly increased. Over the years, we've always tended to approach the management of hyperglycemia with a downstream intervention, but perhaps using an upstream intervention, tackling obesity can curtail some of these metabolic aberrancies that I've just described for you. Weight loss is actually very, very important for our patients. And what we've learned to recognize is that as little as a 3% reduction in body weight can have a beneficial effect on lipids, particularly triglycerides. A little bit more weight reduction, like maybe 5%, will lead to improvements in HDL. Systolic and diastolic blood pressures will also help with hepatic steatosis, as measured by magnetic resonance spectroscopy and in addition can actually improve quality of life with diminution of stress incontinence and actually improve sexual function. Now as we start to lose even more weight, 10 percent body weight loss can actually have a significant improvement in non-alcoholic steatohepatitis as objectively measured with liver biopsies and also improvement in the apnea hypopnea index but reduction in 15% can actually lead to significant reduction in cardiovascular events, such as mortality and also even remission of type 2 diabetes. Now, it's really important that there's multiple risk factors that can actually drive cardiometabolic risk, and we've learned that these would be hemoglobin A1C reduction, systolic blood pressure control, as well as lipid management. And what we've learned over the years is that we've actually had improvement in terms of our patients achieving better blood pressure control and lipids. But despite the years that have gone by and the new innovations with diabetes management, we're not doing any better in terms of achieving hemoglobin A1c targets that are ascribed for our patients. And when we're looking at the composite endpoint, it doesn't seem that we're doing much better either with about maybe 27% of patients really achieving that composite endpoint of an individualized hemoglobin A1c, a blood pressure of less than 140 over 90, or an LDL of less than 100. Now, in terms of the toolbox of what's available for management, the big star player over the more recent years has been the GLP-1 receptor agonists. Now, the GLP-1 receptor agonists are actually a very useful class of agents because they offer a glucose-centric mechanism of hemoglobin A1C reduction with high glycemic efficacy demonstrated. But because it's centered on improving insulin secretion, dependent on the blood glucose level, the risk of hypoglycemia tends to be a little bit lower. There are beneficial effects on weight, And that weight benefit is actually driven by the molecular size of the molecule and its ability to penetrate the blood-brain barrier and hit certain areas of the brain that are responsible for driving appetite and satiety. There's also beneficial effects on blood pressure, kidney function, lipid profile, as well as hepatic effects. Now, all of these GLP-1 receptor agonists that have been approved over the years have been shown at the very least to be safe for use in patients with established heart disease. But some of these agents actually have demonstrated statistical superiority in terms of reduction of major adverse cardiovascular events, not just for secondary prevention, but also one agent in particular was noted to be beneficial and ascribed a primary prevention indication. And as a consequence of the beneficial effects of these GLP-1 receptor agonists, Some of the more recognized organizations, such as the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists and their algorithm, actually advocate and prioritize GLP-1 receptor agonists earlier in their use, as well as the American Diabetes Association consensus statement. So one of the big barriers that we have when managing our patients with diabetes is the challenge of hypoglycemia. Over the years, we've actually, and again, looking at a glucocentric mechanism of action, have used agents such as sulfonylureas and basal insulins and even premixed insulins. And we all know that these agents not only produce non-severe hypoglycemia, which is quite annoying, but they also produce severe hypoglycemia requiring third-party assistance. Hypoglycemic events are not inexpensive. They're actually exhausting on the healthcare system as well as patients and family members in general. But when we're looking at these newer generation agents, such as GLP-1 receptor agonists, DPP-4 inhibitors, and SGLT-2 inhibitors, the risk of hypoglycemia is much reduced, unless they're concomitantly utilized with a sulfonylurea or an insulin, and then the risk of hypoglycemia can actually increase. Another recognized challenge of glycemic management is weight gain. But what we've learned over the years is some of agents that we use for the management of diabetes, like sulfonylureas, basal insulins thiazolidinediones are criminal of actually inducing weight gain for our patients but as we start to look at some of the more recently approved agents and even some of the older ones like metformin they tend to offer more weight neutrality and in fact dpp4 inhibitors are also a little bit of weight neutrality maybe a little bit of weight loss but the weight benefit that we typically see with our patients has been duly noted with the sglt 2 inhibitors and even more so with the GLP-1 receptor agonists. Now, weight management has also been evolving over the years and we have several agents that are available for use in the marketplace today. So let's take a look at a poll question and let's see how you actually answer to this question. So which of these therapies are you very familiar with? It seems that the vast majority of you are very familiar with the GLP-1 receptor agonist and What's also very interesting is that, well, glucagon is also something that you're familiar with. But very interestingly, it is that a good amount of you are very familiar with the GLP-1-GIP dual agonist combination. Well, that actually concludes my introduction. And um, it's actually my pleasure to introduce one of the world leaders when it comes to obesity management and weight loss coaching, as well as a colleague, researcher, and a person I'm proud to call a friend. Dr. Donna Ryan.
2: Thank you, Javi. I'm delighted to be here with you. And so what I wanna start off talking about is the fact that we're really doing pretty well in uh, developing medications based on our advanced understanding of the physiology of glycemic regulation and body weight regulation. And in particular, what happens to our bodies when we try to lose weight. You know, so when we begin to lose weight, when we start to reduce our fat mass, we have, first off, a reduction in our metabolic rate, and that is called adaptive thermogenesis or uh, metabolic adaptation. And so what's going on there is when we start to decrease our fat mass, due really to, uh, to a disproportionate reduction in leptin, we see a reduction in resting energy expenditure, an increase in muscle efficiency. And so this fights against further weight loss and really promotes weight regain. But it's not all about metabolism. There's, there are also changes in appetite that occur. And so when we start to lose weight, we see increases in the hunger hormone. We can measure this around a test meal, the hunger hormone is higher and it's not as suppressed as much when we're losing weight. And there are decreases in the satiety hormones around those test meals. So decreases in GLP-1, GIP, CCK, PYY, and also the pancreatic uh, proteins, insulin and amylin, which also promote satiety. So I think understanding th- this, this physiology has really helped us adapt and develop some really great medications for type 2 diabetes and for obesity. So uh, the, three, the three targets that are most often considered are shown here, GLP-1, and that's the one that we've really exploited to develop medications for type 2 diabetes, and also uh, for for Uh, obesity, for chronic weight management. But GIP is another important one, and glucagon. So GIP is a peptide produced by the intestinal K cells. GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide, is produced by the the intestinal L cells. And of course, glucagon is produced by alpha cells in the pancreas. So these peptides are all part of the glucagon superfamily Uh, The GLP-1 molecule has been the one that we've been most successful in turning from physiology into pharmacology. So the GLP-1 analogs, or the GLP-1 receptor agonists, have been developed with indications for type 2 diabetes. And I'm showing you here in blue the agents that have been developed since 2005 with an indication for type 2 diabetes. Uh, on the bottom, we have um, the GLP-1 uh, analogs, or receptor agonists that have been developed with an obesity uh, indication, loraglutide, 3 milligrams, and semaglutide, 2.4 milligrams. Here I'm showing you the native GLP-1 in the top left. So this is a peptide that is rapidly degraded by DPV-4. It has a half-life of only one to two minutes. But here's how we change physiology into pharmacology. So these other agents have amino acid substitutions in the spot where DPP4 works, so that enzyme can't degrade it. And then their fatty acid side chains that are added are parts of the molecule that make it bind to albumin that make these compounds much longer acting. So we have the extended release form of exenatide, semaglutide, and dulaglutide that are dosed once weekly, and uh, liraglutide and lixizenatide that are dosed daily. We no longer have albiglutide available. One interesting thing that's happening to these compounds is that higher doses for type 2 diabetes are becoming available. So dulaglutide is going to be available at 3 milligrams, and 4.5 milligrams. And later this year, we expect to see semaglutide 2 milligrams be released for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. So GIP initially hasn't been a very attractive target. And the reason for this lack of enthusiasm is that if you infuse GIP at super physiologic doses in individuals with type 2 diabetes, you see a decrease in insulin. So you lose the insulinotropic effect of GIP. And we know that GIP also increases glucagon. So this is not a very favorable pharmacologic profile for an agent for the treatment of type 2 diabetes or for the treatment of obesity. But if you co-infuse both GLP-1 and GIP, you do get a synergistic effect. The response is to increase insulin and decrease glucagon. So the co-infusion of GLP-1 and GIP produces this better response from insulin. You get more glycemic effect and you, uh, compared to the administration of GIP alone. So the theme of this uh, uh, discussion tonight has been Synergism and the synergism that occurs between GIP and GLP one is critical to the development of this dual analog with efficacy for glycemia and for weight weight loss. So the idea of combining GLP one and GIP as as a, um, a single molecule that would be given in one injection as a dual agonist, and that's shown here in the middle, is that you could get improved glycemic control from GIP or GLP-1 alone. And you could also maintain the effect on body weight of GLP-1. And the GIP might give additional efficacy in terms of lipolysis and in improving lipids. On the left, we see the combination, a dual agonist that would target both GLP-1 and glucagon. So what might the benefits be there? Well, first of all, the glucagon is going to increase energy expenditure. So you might get improved reduction in body weight. But you would also get uh, benefits in terms of glycemic control. And with glucagon, we think we would have superior clearing of the liver of fat. On the right, we have the triple agonist. GLP 1, GIP, and glucagon. And if we could hit all of those receptors together, we might get the best of all worlds. So we would get improvements in body weight, improvements in glycemic control, hepatosteatosis clearing, uh, improvements in lipids, increased energy expenditure, increased lipolysis. But I think we need to finish up here with a brief view of what the future is going to hold. So this is a very active area of drug development. We have GLP-1 receptor analogs in, in, in the pipeline, not just peptides, but there's one company that has a small molecule that is a uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist. Uh, there are also GIP receptor agonists, glucagon analogs, dual agonists, both GLP-1 and glucagon, and GIP-GLP-1, triple agonist, amylin analogs, Amylin and calcitonin dual agonist and Y two R uh, agonist. So lots of interesting compounds coming up. I think what it all means is that we're really looking for biologic approaches that can improve our patients' glycemia, weight, lipid profiles. That can have effects on clearing the liver of of fat and might and perhaps. Indications for Nash. So all of this biology is coming together, and we, what we really want is, uh, is to develop agents that produce uh, multiple, uh, multiple effects in multiple areas.
1: Wow, that was really fascinating, Donna. Thank you so much for walking us through the miracles of molecular engineering, because it really is quite fascinating how we're able to fabricate different affinities with these molecules in hopes of achieving and actually designer drugs that allow us to facilitate so much weight loss and so much benefit. But I do have a question for you. So why does GIP appear to lose insulinotropic activity in people with type two diabetes while the insulinotropic effects of GLP-1
2: seem to only be slightly impaired? If you give a super physiologic infusion of GIP, in individuals with type 2 diabetes, and in certain individuals of Japanese uh, descent, you lose that insulinotropic activity. We don't know exactly why that is uh, Javier, but but in animals, it appears to be that continuous infusion of GIP downregulates that GIP receptor, and so it may be affecting the activity of of the GIP receptor and that may be why it occurs, but what's important is that the combination of GIP and GLP-1, when given together, acts synergistically to improve glycemic indices. And we're hoping to see some evidence of that uh, from our next, next, next guest.
1: What about weight? What pathways actually mediate the anorexogenic activity of the dual GLP-1 GIP receptor agonist?
2: Well, there are GIP and, and GLP one receptors overlap in the brain in these areas that that regulate appetite, but there's also uh, there there are also specific areas where they exist with without each other. So that GIP um, receptor in the brain may be adding something to the uh, to the appetite effects. Uh, it's also possible that um, G.I.P., because it's associated with less nausea, may be allowing for increased dosing and thus greater weight loss effects.
1: And that's really fascinating because oftentimes, I mean, nausea is one of the limiting factors whenever considering GLP-1 receptor agonist therapy. But I guess we'll be talking a little bit about that in the presentation to come. So thanks very much for sharing that information with us. And it just gives me such great pleasure to introduce Juan Pablo Frias, a key researcher from the state of California. Juan is no stranger in the endocrine community, and he's highly published and highly respected. Juan, thank you for joining us today.
3: Yeah, Javier, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be here with you and, of course, with Donna. And Donna, wonderful talk to set the stage for this. So I'm going to be speaking for the next um, several minutes about terzepatide, the dual GIP-GLP-1 receptor agonist, and show you some of the clinical data, some of the efficacy and safety data. And I'd like to start, this is actually a survey that was conducted in 50 of our colleagues and um, previously, obviously, and asked the question, to which medication class does the investigational agent terzepatide belong? Now, most of the responders said a GLP-1 receptor agonist, probably because those are available and very commonly used. So but it trans-appetite. Excuse me? Yeah, I know. So I just wanted to, to just mention, did that surprise you? No, because there, you know, there is no dual or triple agonist available now. This is in development. But I think as we see whether these agents get approved, and we anticipate they will in the near future... Um, There'll be much more awareness about exactly what the the mechanism is and also what the class of of medication it is. But the correct answer, as you just heard from Donna, is that terzepatide is a dual agonist of the GIP and the GLP-1 receptor. So let me go through some of the data. So a number of clinical trials have been conducted with terzepatide in type 2 diabetes. The name of the program, of the clinical development program, is a SURPASS program. And as you can see here, the SURPASS program covers a wide spectrum of patients with type 2 diabetes, from patient um, monotherapy, so terzepatide is the only agent, in SURPASS-1, all the way to the right of this slide, showing patients with terzepatide as an adjunct to basal insulin. in surpassed five, which has been completed and published, and an ongoing study surpassed six. So we're seeing a wide spectrum of patients in these trials. And very importantly, a dedicated cardiovascular outcomes trial, surpassed cardiovascular outcome, or CVOT, is currently being conducted versus the selective GLP-1 receptor agonist dulaglutide, and these data are anticipated to be out in 2024. Here we see the general study design of all of these studies. And basically what was done was a comparison of trazepatite 5, 10, or 15 milligrams, and this is administered by subcutaneous injection once weekly, versus a comparator. And in these studies, a comparator was either placebo or an active comparator. In fact, in Surpass 2, the active comparator was the selective GLP-1 receptor agonist once weekly semaglutide at a dose of one milligram once weekly. In Surpass 3, for example, the comparator was the second generation basal insulin analog um, insulin Degladec. And the primary endpoint in all of these studies, except for the cardiovascular outcomes trial, was superiority or non-inferiority with respect to A1C change from baseline to study end for the five and or the 10 and or the 15 milligram dose. And here we see the primary endpoint in five of the surpassed trials. And just to summarize, from a baseline hemoglobin A1C between 7.9 and 8.5%, so clearly not a normal A1C, We saw reductions up to 2.4% in patients treated with the 15-milligram dose, so very robust reductions in hemoglobin A1c over either 40 or 52 weeks, and in each case and with each dose, 5, 10, and 15 milligrams, a significantly greater reduction in A1c versus the comparator, again, either placebo or an active comparator. Very importantly, we also saw a significantly greater proportion of patients achieving clinically important A1c targets. So what we see here is the percent of patients achieving an A1c of less than 7% at the end of the study. And you can see that I'm always greater than the comparator, but up to 90% of patients achieving this important glycemic target. And what was a little bit surprising as we were conducting actually the phase 2 studies and started seeing this is that a relatively large proportion of patients, up to 40, even 50%, completely normalizing glycemic control during the course of the study, so to an A1C of less than 5.7%. And this really had not been seen and has not been seen with other antihyperglycemic agents. If we look at body weight or change in body weight, again, very robust reductions in body weight with terzepatite, always greater reduction in body weight compared with the either placebo or the active comparator and mean relative reductions in body weight up to 13, 14% with the 15 milligram dose. So very robust reductions in body weight and a relatively high proportion of patients achieving clinically relevant weight loss targets. Here we see greater than or equal to 5% weight loss during the duration of the study, up to 80% of the patients at the higher 15 milligram dose. If we look at an even um, tighter target, if you will, greater than or equal to 10% weight loss, over 50% and closer to 60% in some of the studies at the 15 milligram dose. And in fact, I don't show it here, but greater than 15% body weight reduction was seen in about a quarter of the patients in some of the studies at the higher 15 milligram dose. Now, if we look at side effects, and as you know, the most common side effects of GLP-1 receptor agonists are GI-related side effects, so nausea, vomiting, perhaps diarrhea, um, this is looking at the incidence of nausea with terzepatite at the three doses, 5, 10, and 15 milligrams versus semaglutide, so the selective GLP-1 receptor agonist. This is from the SURPASS-2 trial. And what we're seeing here is the same pattern of GI side effects with the dual agonist, with terzapatide, compared to semaglutide. So most of it tended to be, and this is looking just at nausea here, but tended to be mild to moderate in severity, occur early in the course of therapy and dissipate over time. And actually, if you compare terzepatide to semaglutide, very comparable incidence of nausea throughout in a similar pattern again. If we look at hypoglycemia, and these are data also from SURPASS-2, this is terzepatide or semaglutide in conjunction with metformin, and given the mechanism of action, you wouldn't expect a lot of hypoglycemia. In this particular study, this is looking at level 2 or clinically significant hypoglycemia, less than 54 milligrams per deciliter, very low incidence, slightly higher than some with the 15 milligram terzepatide dose. But very importantly, only one episode of severe hypoglycemia and this patient did well. So hypoglycemia requiring the assistance of a third party. I would say, in studies where terzepatide was assessed in conjunction with drugs that do not cause hypoglycemia, such as metformin, this is the type of pattern that was seen. But as with any drug, if we add it to a drug that may cause hypoglycemia, such as a urea or insulin, we need to be careful and generally proactively reduce the, me- the, dr- the dose of those medications to, to um, try to avoid hypoglycemia. Now I'm gonna shift gears a little bit and just show one slide, actually the next slide, showing um, some data um, specifically about fatty liver disease. But this fatty liver disease is extremely common in patients with type 2 diabetes. It's estimated that up to 70% of patients with type 2 diabetes have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And we know that weight reduction is one of the most important drivers of improving liver health. In fact, if we lose greater than or equal to 5%, we can see some, uh, some um, improvement in hepatocyte damage or ballooning and inflammation. NASH resolution in ninety up to 90% of patients who lose greater than or equal to 7% weight loss. And when you get to greater than 10%, you can actually have regression of fibrosis. This is great, but it is very difficult to lose this degree of body weight without sometimes pharmacotherapy or bariatric surgery, and certainly to maintain it. So. Um, if we look at, there was a sub-study, actually, that was conducted of the SURPASS-3 trial, which looked at MRIs looking at um, what's called protein density fat fraction, so steatosis and the amount of fat in the liver. And this is just one patient that's representative of the results. But this was a 59-year-old man in this study who was treated with 5 milligrams of tirzepatide. He was also a metformin and an SGLT2 inhibitor, baseline, And on the left, you can see his baseline MRI and what's shown there, the LFC, is a liver um, fat content, 27%. Now, over 5% defines fatty liver disease, so clearly abnormal. But you can see that this patient lost about 25 kilograms or 26 kilograms, so almost 60 pounds, had a phenomenal reduction in A1C from 9.3 to 6.1 over the 52 weeks of this study, and you can see what happened with his liver fat content, went from 27% to completely normal, 2 point, reading that there, 2.6%. So very nice result. And terzepatite is also being assessed not only for obesity and obesity-specific trials, but also in a phase 2 study called Synergy NASH, specifically in patients with biopsy-proven NASH. Wow, that was really fascinating. I I really, really appreciated that
1: discussion. But I do have one question for you concerning the liver fat that you just presented. Absolutely. Is it the weight loss that improved the liver fat content, or is it a pleiotropic effect of the combination of therapy? Yeah, that's that's a
3: great question. I would say the weight loss clearly has an effect. We know the weight loss affects fat content in the liver, and as I mentioned, potentially even at this degree of weight loss, even can, uh, can cause some regression of fibrosis. But there is thinking with both the GLP-1 receptor agonists and these multi-agonists that there may be some other independent effects. There are no GLP-1 or GIP receptors on hepatocytes, but certainly they're very important effects on fat metabolism, on inflammation, so maybe the antioxidant effect. And so these may have a role as well, independent of body weight loss. But we don't know the absolute answer to that yet.
1: Wow, that's really fascinating. So, I mean, these agents are really going to do a lot in terms of not just uh, not just hemoglobin A1C control and weight, but also end organ effects, which are fantastic.
3: Absolutely. So there
1: is one question that I have for you, and that's concerning clinical trials and cardiovascular risk. Can you give us a little bit more information about some of this ongoing cardiovascular outcome trials?
3: Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, one, one thing to point out that I think is important, as with the selective GLP-1 receptor agonists, which, whether it's dual aglutide, semaglutide, we do see improvements in cardiovascular risk factors with terzepatite. So reductions in blood pressure, for example. Improvements in lipids as well, and particularly with ter- with very nice improvements in triglycerides, even beyond that which you see with selective GLP-1 receptor agonists. And this could point to the fact, or or be due to the fact that the adipocyte has GIP receptors and is a very metabolically active tissue. Clearly, but what um what we have in terms of data in a recent publication is a pre-planned meta-analysis that was conducted in seven of the completed trials that were at least 26 weeks long and looked over time at terzepatide, the combined doses versus the comparator, looking at the primary endpoint of the time to first MACE-4. And this major adverse cardiovascular event four included cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke, and hospitalization due to unstable angina. And basically, what was found was that terzepatide was safe from a cardiovascular perspective. You can see the, the hazards ratio for MACE 4 was actually lower with terzepatide, but given that this study was not powered to show superiority, basically it just showed safety of terzepatide from a cardiovascular perspective in the, these overall population in the phase three trials and we'll learn much more in 2024 when the cardiovascular outcomes trial is completed. So going back to the polling questions now, the 50 um, healthcare providers that were, were asked several questions, one question that was asked was, what is the most compelling feature of terzepatide as a potentially novel treatment option for type 2 diabetes and I think what strikes me here is that over a third, the 34%, said they were not sure. And again, it speaks to the importance of, of education about this agent, this dual agonist of GIP and GLP-1. But about a third said it was the efficacy results that we saw in the, um, the past clinical trials um, and including the weight reduction, so both A1C and weight reduction. And about 15%, the mechanism of action, which is clearly distinct from that of a GLP-1 receptor agonist.
2: So, Juan, uh, you've convinced me on the improvements in glycemia, but what about this weight loss? What, do you have any, any uh, information for me on the weight loss trajectory? I'm concerned that some of your studies were only 40 weeks duration.
3: Yeah, and that's a great point. And 40 weeks really is not enough, and we've seen that with the selective GLP-1 receptor agonist um, as well. And clearly, the primary endpoint of these trials was hemoglobin A1c. So at 40 weeks, whether you look at surpass one as monotherapy or surpass two in combination with metformin or surpass three with metformin and SGLT2 inhibitors, a beautiful reduction in body weight, you know, more so than the comparator. But it looked like the body weight had not plateaued at 42 weeks and maybe not even at 52 weeks yet. But we do have data from a study which is Surpass. that actually followed quite a few patients out to 104 weeks. And here we have two-year data. And what that showed is that at each of the doses, the 5, 10, and the 15 milligram dose, it looked like the body weight plateaued at about one year. So between a year and 62 weeks of follow-up, it looked like there was no further weight reduction, but it was sustained, which is very important. But that's a great question.
1: Wow, we've learned so much so already with respect to this GLP-1-GIP combination. And it's also encouraging to see that the weight benefit is definitely sustainable. And I'm sure that the end organ effects will be as well. But how do we use this? How would we use this medication? How was the dose titration implemented
3: in the clinical trials? Juan, can you walk us through that? Absolutely. So just as with GLP-1 receptor agonists and many other medications, in order to improve tolerability, we had to start with a lower dose and then dose escalate relatively slowly in steps. So basically everyone was started with a 2.5 milligram dose once a week, and then the dose was escalated by 2.5 milligrams every four weeks until the randomized dose was reached. So the 5-milligram dose was reached in 4 weeks after 4 weeks of 2.5. The 10-milligram dose was reached in 12 weeks, so it was 2.5, 5, 5, 7.5, and then 10. And the 15-milligram dose was reached in 20 weeks, again increasing in 2.5-milligram increments every 4 weeks. I will point out, though, that those patients who were randomized to the 15-milligram dose we're all see, already seeing very good um, improvements as they were dose escalating through all of the intermediate doses as they were going towards the 15 milligram dose. But this was done in order to improve gastrointestinal tolerability.
1: You know, it's kind of interesting because, I mean, for years, we've been using the GLP-1 receptor agonists. And of course, the big challenge is going to be the GI adverse events, which could be circumvented by... Well, just don't eat if you feel full and try to avoid those fried and fatty foods. I'm sure that Donna, can you share a little bit of insight in terms of how you can conquer some of that anti effect with some of the patients?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, first and foremost, watch your dose and, and follow that dose escalation scheme. So that 20 weeks to the top dose for terzepatide is exactly the same as semaglutide. I'm interested if this GIP-GLP1 combination gave us any breaks on nausea and vomiting. Was there any evidence of that, Lon?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And what I showed previously versus, and surpassed two versus semaglutide, it looked like it was very similar, but similar with respect to GI side effects, but significantly greater efficacy with respect to A1C lowering and body weight. And it's very interesting because there have been studies, and some of these are animal studies, but also in humans, when you infuse GIP, you don't get the GI side effects that you get when you infuse GLP-1. And there is a thought, and there's certainly some, actually some medications in development with using GIP agonists potentially as anti-nausea and anti-emetics. As you mentioned previously, there are GIP receptors in area of the hindbrain that are very important for appetite, for satiety, but also that are centers of nausea and vomiting. And the thinking is that potentially, and again, this is speculating, that having the GIP in this combination may actually mitigate some of the GI side effects from the GLP-1 thereby sort of raising or widening the therapeutic index of the drug so we can get more efficacy either with similar or potentially with less GI side effects. So that's sort of an area of intense investigation, a bit theoretical at this point, but certainly has been seen in preclinical studies and in animal models. So in terms of these clinical
1: trials, though, having you uh, been one of the investigators here, how did you avoid or manage some of the adverse events during those clinical trials and some of those patients that were involved?
3: Yeah. So again, the most common adverse events were gastrointestinal in, in nature. So nausea, vomiting, some patients, diarrhea, very similar to what we see with the GLP-1 receptor agonists. And, that, and quite frankly, we managed them similarly. which you had mentioned before is, you know, stop eating if you're full, avoid the really fatty foods. Um, You know, um, I I think just letting the patients know that this may occur, so anticipatory guidance is very important, so they're not surprised when they're feeling sort of extra full early. Um, But in some cases, we did need to treat them with antiemetics or antidiarrheal agents, and generally, they um, resolved over time and were mild to moderate in in severity. In fact, if you look at the studies and look at the patients who had to stop medication, Due to GI side effects, it was a similar proportion with trazepatide versus semaglutide, for example. But clearly some patients, just like they don't tolerate even metformin, may not tolerate the drug. And again, as Donna mentioned, and I had mentioned too, the slow up titration and sometimes having to de-escalate the dose if a patient's not doing well on their current dose and then attempting to re-escalate. So I think we'll learn how to do it, but we've learned a lot from the GLP-1 receptor agonists as well. And I would say the vast majority of patients do tolerate the drug without side effects. So, um, you know, although the side effects are important, most patients don't have them. We have to remember that too.
1: All right, well, thank you very much, both of you, for your insight in terms of, well, giving us a little lesson on physiology and clinical trials. We do have a polled question, and that's basically what barriers to weight management do your patients with type 2 diabetes experience? And it seems that most of us polled seem to feel that poor patient engagement was one of the major factors here in terms of a barrier to to weight loss. And certainly there's there's a, a vast heterogeneity in terms of all of these answers, in terms of lack of obesity treatment guidelines and lack of access to healthy foods, all of these things which can be very easily overcome through the use of utilization of resources that are readily available. So the first and foremost thing that we should exercise is individualization of the type 2 diabetes treatment plan. And what we've learned is that shared decision-making ultimately leads to greater adherence to therapy and greater success. So we really do need to understand the patient's weight history, what triggers their weight gain or their behavior, successful and unsuccessful interventions that were previously tried. Now let's take a look at our therapeutic toolbox. Let's give advice on what options actually exist that may include weight loss, pharmacotherapies, or even glucose lowering therapies that offer a significant benefit in terms of weight. And we also need to consider comorbid conditions. Do they have heart disease? Is there concomitant non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Are they at risk of heart failure? What contraindications exist? And weight effects of medications for some of these comorbid complications. As we heard from Dr. Frias' presentation, look at the beneficial effect on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that was demonstrated. A picture is worth a thousand words and I'll tell you, Juan, that picture of that liver is not going to escape my mind. And of course, after having discussed with the patient, what do they prefer? And once we do institute therapies, Monitoring weight loss, pharmacotherapies for efficacy, safety, and adjustment will need to be exercised. So communication within the patient encounter is going to be really important. So in that examination room, you have to ask the patient, is it a good time to really discuss weight and health and how they may be affecting each other? Some patients may be a little bit shy and they may not want to address that. And Our response has to be crafted carefully, not to alienate the patient. Basically statements like, I understand that you may not be ready to discuss your weight. However, I am concerned about the impact of your weight on your health, and there may be some things that we can do together in the future. Leave that door open so you can explore it during the next follow-up visit. But if they are ready for that discussion, then we really need to ask them, what concerns them about their weight? What's the single most important outcome that they hope to achieve with respect to weight loss, appropriate goal setting, and the time interval in in, uh, which you achieve that weight loss or hope to achieve that weight loss. So we do have tools that are available to help in the decision-making process, in particular, the SDMQ-9 tool. So here, we explore different options that we can exercise, such as whether or not the physician or the provider makes it clear in terms of the decision needs to be made whether or not the practitioner wanted to know exactly how the patient to be involved in the decision-making process. And uh, items such as whether or not the provider has informed the patient that there are different options for treating their medical conditions. And inclusion of the patient in the decision-making process and whether or not the provider was able to help the patient understand all of the information provided. So this tool is available, it's downloadable, and uh, really I encourage you to use it because it is quite helpful for our patients. So this brings us to case discussions. And uh, Donna Antoine, let's talk about Wilma, 61 year old female with atherosclerotic heart disease and type two diabetes. She has a long and persistent history of being overweight. Now, she is a small business owner. She does have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and diabetes diagnosed seven years ago with a long and persistent history of being overweight. Now, her hemoglobin A1C ranges anywhere from 7.7% to 8.5%, and she's been managed on a DPP-4 inhibitor and low-dose sulfonylurea. Now, she is reluctant to intensify therapy. Previously, she reports intolerance to metformin, She's tried it on several occasions, which unfortunately resulted in some explosive diarrhea. So if we look at her visit notes, she shares that she's heard some good things about GLP-1 receptor agonists, specifically the weekly agents. She's interested in weight loss and the benefits of these GLP-1 receptor agonists, and she does express some concern about potential adverse offense. So Juan, take it away. What would you do with Wilma?
3: Yeah, so Wilma definitely needs some adjustment in her anti-diabetic regimen. I think probably what stands out the most is the fact that she has pre-existing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and obviously she has issues with with body weight as well. And this regimen of a DPP4 inhibitor, which is weight neutral and neutral with respect to cardiovascular disease improvement or or risk, and a sulfonylurea, which actually causes increase in body weight, is not the right regimen. So she would be ideal, actually, for a GLP-1 receptor agonist and an SGLT-2 inhibitor. She clearly can't tolerate metformin. She might be able to tolerate the extended release formulation. But I would ultimately want to have her on a GLP-1 receptor agonist and an SGLT-2 inhibitor for both her cardiovascular risk and for her body weight and to improve glycemic control.
2: I concur with my brilliant colleague, I would also stop the sulfonylurea. You know, when we put patients in negative energy balance, they do not need insulin secretagogues, And on a, on a GLP-1 receptor agonist, they don't need a DPP-4 inhibitor. So I would stop both the DPP-4 inhibitor and the sulfonylurea. And I, I think brilliant, brilliant management plan. This patient needs to be on on an SGLT2 inhibitor and a GLP-1 receptor agonist. You know, that is the standard of care for diabetes today.
3: And I think you make an excellent point. We clearly should stop the sulfonylurea. No need to be on two incretin-based therapies. We stopped the DPP-4 inhibitor. So although we're giving her much better therapy, we're actually giving her something that's much less complicated, a once-weekly injection of dual or semaglutide. And a once-daily SGLT2 inhibitor. So we're not complicating her regimen at all, which would hopefully lead to improved adherence and and persistence with therapy as well. And one really important point for our viewers in the audience
1: is that she is on a DPP-4 inhibitor. So if she's interested in that GLP-1 receptor agonist, I do really need to re-emphasize that GLP-1s and DPP-4s should not be used together because... Well, dpp four is really restore GLP-1 to physiologic levels, whereas when you're providing a GLP-1 exogenously at pharmacologic doses, it's uh, super, super higher. So there's really uh, no significant difference, uh, should I say no improvement in using both in combination. Great. Now, Juan, I have a question for you. If this GLP-1-GIP combination was available, would that be an appropriate medication for Wilma to utilize?
3: Yeah, I think it would be. Based on the data, whether we used it as monotherapy, as in surpass one, or you know, even if we kept the urea on board, um, we would get very good A1C reduction, most likely, and weight reduction as well. So it would be an appropriate agent for her. I would say, though, as I mentioned, we don't yet have proven cardiovascular benefit as we have with dulaglutide and with semaglutide. So if I was going to use terzepatide, should it become available, I would make sure that I used it in conjunction with a SGLT2 inhibitor with proven cardiovascular benefit, empagliflozin or dapagliflozin um, would be, or canagliflozin would be my choices. So yes, I think we would get very good glycemic and weight loss benefit with terzepatide. Wonderful. So let's move on to our next case. And this is Glenn
1: a 55-year-old man with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and obesity, who's experiencing weight gain on a basal insulin. He's a metal recycler. He's had atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, diabetes for 10 years, and obesity. Now, he's struggled with weight gain ever since childhood. His A1c currently is 9% on basal insulin, titrated to a dose of 60 units per day, and metformin. Now, unfortunately, he's gained about 24 pounds since initiating insulin two years ago and really doesn't want to increase his insulin dose any further, nor does he want to intensify with mealtime insulin. So his family history on his mother's side was that of adults developing type 2 diabetes in their 30s. Now, in terms of visit notes, he was previously treated with metformin. Metformin in combination with the sulfonylurea metformin in combination with the sulfonylurea and thiazolidinedione. Now, the patient is frustrated by an inability to meet his glycemic goals and his ever-troublesome increasing weight. Donna, what would you do for this gentleman?
2: You know, um, this patient has established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and our standards of care for diabetes would be to treat this patient with an with either an SGLT two inhibitor or a G- GLP one receptor agonist, so recently in the latest standards of care, they moved the, the GLP one receptor agonist up ahead of uh, the SGLT two inhibitors in terms of the the weight effects. So I think we would I would really like to see this patient on a uh, on an S on a, on a glp one receptor agonist, and I'm on one of the ones where I could really push the dose up to try to get some weight loss. this patient has had diabetes for ten years i'm worried about him having residual beta cell function, but um, I would really like to see him on a lower dose of insulin and i and I wonder if we wouldn't be if we if we could perhaps not get him off of Insulin entirely. If we could get enough weight loss and get enough um, of our SDL, of our GLP one receptor agonist in him, so I'd like to see him on some and I would like to push that dose up as much as I could to achieve as much weight loss as I could. Thanks
3: well, uh, very what's much, your Donna. Yeah, Thanks you know what? Your... I, I completely agree, and I would go, I probably to the two point four milligram semaglutide dose. So go and really push with respect to the body weight. We'll get the A one C down as well, and as you mentioned, um, more than likely he'll need a reduction in that insulin dose, which would be good. I would love to know his renal function as well. This someone like our someone like our previous patient that may also benefit from dual therapy with a GLP-1 receptor agonist and an SGLT-2 inhibitor. And if you have metformin in there with the insulin, you're really covering all the pathophysiologic defects that lead to hyperglycemia and type two diabetes, but we're tackling many of these extra glycemic issues in this patient as well. So completely agree with you, Donna. You know, Juan, if we're looking
1: at such improvement in beta cell function efficacy and greater reduction in hemoglobin A1Cs, as was demonstrated in these surpassed trials, would a dual incretin agonist afford
3: Glenn the abilities to safely come off of insulin eventually? What do you think? You know, that, that wouldn't be necessarily my treatment goal that I want to get him off insulin. I want to improve glycemic control. I want to mitigate weight gain or reduce weight gain. I want to reduce cardiovascular risk. But yes, there is a potential that in time I will have to, you know, to avoid hypoglycemia, reduce the insulin dose. And I've seen it in some patients, again, very anecdotal, being able to take patients off of insulin. But that's where we need to individualize our approach and just monitor and watch the patient very carefully over time. But that would be nice for the patient and also simplifies therapy as well. And I know, like in the community, we
1: see a lot of patients that are on insulin that we'd like to institute a a GLP1 receptor agonist. And, you know, across some of the clinical trials that had been performed in the past, if you're concomitantly on insulin and you're going to introduce a long acting GLP1, because the long acting GLP1s do have a suppressive effect on glucagon, um, I believe it was your trial, Juan, where you talked about reducing the basal insulin
3: dose. Right. Right, yes. So we should, particularly in patients that are closer to target, but maybe even a patient like this where we would proactively reduce the dose as we're introducing the GLP-1 receptor agonist therapy or other therapies to ensure that we're not getting any hypoglycemia, which could be particularly dangerous in someone with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or not that this patient's elderly, but elderly patients, is ga- again, we need to be very careful with them.
1: Yeah, and with a long-standing history of diabetes and on insulin, certainly I'm sure his hypoglycemia awareness is going to be reduced greatly. Correct. So if the A1C is less than 8%, typically I'll reduce the basal insulin by 20% if I'm going to introduce a long-acting GLP-1. And we really don't have much guidance with respect to these coagonist therapies, but I'm sure that they're going to follow suit for the sake of safety. Agree. Yeah. So let's move on to our third case. And this is a 44-year-old woman by the name of Caitlin with type 2 diabetes and severe obesity. She's a radiology scheduler. She's had diabetes now for four years, long and persistent history of obesity. Her A1c is at 7.8% on metformin, and she's on an SGLT2 inhibitor, dapagliflozin. Her BMI is 42.9, LDL of 150. She's had recently experienced an unexplained episode of chest pain with dyspnea that motivated her to lose weight. So in terms of visit notes, she'd like to lose at least 100 pounds, which is 40% of her current body weight, to a goal BMI of 25.7. Bravo for her, because she really has a goal set in mind. And she's interested in initiating an anti-obesity medication after seeing a
2: commercial on TV. So Donna, so, you know, uh, even with bariatric surgery, it would be hard for me to promise that, we, that I could achieve a 40% body weight loss for any patient. So I think the first thing I want to do with this patient is have a heart-to-heart and set a more realistic initial goal. I'm not saying we can't get to 40% one day, but I think what I want to do is to, is to break break that up and and set a more realistic goal of 10% or 15%. So I believe I could deliver 15% weight loss in this patient if I used a currently available uh GLP-1 uh semaglutide. The mean weight loss with with that drug is about 15%. So that would be my current choice. Um I think I want to give that with a lifestyle intervention. Um, I don't see a need here to, um, to reduce the metformin or the dapicophosin. I don't think either one of those is going to result in um, hypoglycemia with the addition of my anti-obesity medication. So I want to get that semagletide up to 2.4 milligrams. I want to get the patient on a lifestyle intervention along with it.
3: Juan, what have you to add? Not much. That was wonderful, <laughs> and I totally agree. I think realistic expectations, probably number one, because that is a lot to ask for, and we don't want her disappointed in coming off the drug. The only other thing I would add is that I n- need to take care of that LDL cholesterol. We want to get that even below 70, so high-dose statin unless she's got a contraindication, and make sure we're really managing her cardiovascular risk factors. And this is someone, like all of these patients, actually, that I would, for fatty liver disease, I'd calculate a Fib4 on them to look whether they might have fibrosis i would probably get a fiber scan on them and consider sending them on to the hepatologist if they had evidence of any fibrosis because they probably have significant liver disease as well so i wanted to put that out there too
2: Juan, thank you so much for bringing that up you know weight loss can improve lipids but not with the great power of statins and i agree this patient needs to be on a statin
1: You know, also another important caveat with this particular patient being a diabetic is that she's recently had an unexplained episode of chest pain. And on the cornerstone of every therapy for obesity is going to be lifestyle intervention and exercise. So I think prior to engaging in exercise because of her chest pain, she's definitely going to need a cardiology evaluation and some form of ischemia evaluation.
2: Absolutely. You know, in the look-ahead study, we did a stress test on every, every patient who, who was in the intensive lifestyle intervention um, prior to their initiating that lifestyle intervention.
1: So thank you very much for chiming in on today's session. We hope you really found it enjoyable, but let's explore the top five takeaways for optimal treatment with GLP-1 receptor agonists. Number one. Treating obesity, not just glycemia, may reduce the risk of long-term complications with type 2 diabetes. Number two, as a class, GLP-1 receptor agonists are associated with more weight loss than any other glucose-lowering agent in diabetes. Number three, GLP-1 GIP dual agonism is associated with greater glycemic and weight loss efficacy than GLP-1's and with fewer GI adverse events. Number four, in patients with type 2 diabetes treated with terzepatide, up to 50% attained diabetes remission, that is, a hemoglobin A1C of less than 5.7%, and up to 60% attained greater than or equal to 10% weight loss. And now, number five, these new dual and triple incretin agonists are likely to permit more patients with type 2 diabetes to meet their individualized glycemic goals and weight loss goals. Well, Donna and Juan, it's been absolutely delightful spending this session with you. And I mean, I'm sure that the audience learned a lot, but boy, did I learn a lot from both of you guys. Thank you so much for being our special guests this
2: evening. Thank you for having me, Javier. And Juan, I enjoyed it very much.
3: Likewise, I look forward to seeing both of you again soon. Thank you very much.
0: This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KZF860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.